Here's my question to you. Do you believe that there will be a day? That's the question. I've got to tell you, that informs my worldview. Everything about life, it's not Jesus' teacher, although he was extraordinary. It's not Jesus' prophet, although he was incredible. It's not even Jesus' lamb, although that both kindled afresh in me my connection with God, and by that I mean I didn't have a connection, I was dead, I lived in darkness, and now light has come, and that atonement made, my, made the way back to the creator of the universe. But all that goes away if Jesus is not ever coming back. If there is no resurrection, Paul said, we are still in our sins if Christ wasn't raised. If he was raised, it's one thing. He goes back to the right hand of the Father and we return to dust and it's over, but it's not over because he's coming back. He said, we'll see more of this in John 14, one of these days he'll come back, he said, so that where I am you might be also. We've been looking at this Luke 12 parable regarding our readiness for that day. It is so easy getting caught up in the cacophony of life and everything that goes on with just trying to make our way through a fallen world. It's incredible that we get, it's very easy to get distracted and go, oh yeah, he's coming back. It informs, let me say that again, it informs my worldview. What is a worldview? It's the way I view the entirety of my existence, my existential reality, why I'm here, who I am, everything about me is informed by Jesus and his simple words of I'm coming back, and I'm coming back for you, as he was speaking to his disciples. That's either true or it's not true. If it's not true, well, again, we're still in our sins. So let me ask you a question this morning as we look through this. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Jesus spoke very specifically. We've looked the last two weeks at this. First, we looked at what it is to have your lamps lit. I'm going to kind of conclude this three-week teaching on becoming ready, as Jesus describes here in Luke 12. Keep your lamps lit. Last week, we looked at what it was to be a bond slave. Do you even identify as a bond slave? If you're waiting and waiting on the return, and this identity as a bond slave, again, will change the way you live. I, I can always tell the difference in someone who's newly come to Jesus. There's an excitement. There's an intrigue. There's a desire maybe to want to know more about the Bible. Hopefully, there is, obviously, with being born again the Spirit residing in them, but then I know there's going to be a long trek through the wilderness of discipleship before they really move into that next level, which is then identity as a slave, someone who's here to allow God to use my body as a living sacrifice to shine out into the world, because it's no longer just about me, it's about the household. It's about all those future people, those pre-believers who will come to know Jesus through your life and your gifting. That we looked at. I'm going to start here in verse 35. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to conclude with a couple of things this morning. What is it about stewardship? Why did Jesus talk about a sensible steward? What is it to steward your life? And then obviously, what kind of expectation should we live in as it relates to Jesus coming back, and what does that even mean? Are you ready? Let me just read the whole thing, starting in verse 35. Be dressed in readiness. You know, we talked about that. Not only clothed for salvation, 
not only clothed in his righteousness, it is Christ's righteousness that clothes us. And we see that in all the wedding parables that Jesus tells and all this picture of are you dressed in his righteousness. That's the born-again experience. Keep your lamps lit. We talked about that. I'm going to refer to that a little bit more this morning. And then men who are just waiting, these bond slaves, and he says this, be like men who are waiting for their master. Be like men. Be like these guys. And then he gives us a parable, who when his master returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and he knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve, have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Where, whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so blessed are those slaves. When you are in a state of expectation, you are blessed. I can't even begin to describe all the ways in which the blessing occurs. I'm constantly fascinated with the interface between science and the evolution of what we understand in the physical realm and then the spiritual realm or the, maybe the metaphysical realm, how the beyond the physics part of it. It's, uh, f- it continues to be fascinating to me. I heard somewhere this week that Alzheimer's can be most prevented when you make friends, uh, make friends outside of your normal uh, peer group who disagree with you. It's one of the top things you can do to prevent Alzheimer's because it forces your brain into a reasoning capacity and forces you to deal with different things conceptually. It's amazing. And then the next thing it talks about is people who are generous have been seen to not be near as subject to Alzheimer's as those who are not generous. Now, this is secular studies. It's fascinating to me. Uh, because this is, these are all biblical principles that help us understand what it is to be, in fact, a sensible steward in this case. It's fascinating to me. Uh, so if you're, if you're working towards expectation and readiness of his return, then I've got I've to say that there's a good chance that you'll be blessed, not just you'll be blessed and you'll go to heaven and not go to hell. I mean, obviously, that's an that's a eternal, eternal, eternally significant thing you'll ever, incur, you'll ever encounter. But even now, you'll be blessed. Your physical health. Why? Why would generosity? I was thinking about that. Why would generosity lead to less um, Alzheimer's? I think that, I find that fascinating because I think there's a low-grade fear in people who are not generous. They're always concerned, and that leads to increase in cortisol and all those things that break down and increase entropy of your body. Your body's going to get older, but it doesn't have to get old as fast as it goes. And so there's fascinating things to me about that. That just I wonder if that's part of the blessedness of being ready for his coming again. Just speculation on my part. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he, well, he wouldn't have allowed his house to be broken into. And you too be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when, well, that you just don't expect it. Do you expect it now? Well, he's probably not going to come back until I finish this message at least. So, Verse 41. Peter said, well, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone? And, and then the Lord said, and as the Jesus often did, didn't answer the question directly, but gave him the, the grounds in which he could think his way into the proper answer. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom the master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. 
I don't know if that grabs you. I don't know if you can even believe into that today. I don't know. But that grabs me. If that slave says in his heart, well, my master's going to be a long time in coming. That's a way off. I, I know when I was young, I really didn't live in much expectation, even after I came to know Jesus, outside that first maybe six months, that honeymoon period. And then I kind of lost expectation and went back to life and raising kids and working and trying to make sure I had food on the table and all those different kinds of things. I was just always kind of juggling those things, and I think I, I lost a sense of readiness. I think I lost a sense of readiness. But now that drives me, oh, Lord, uh, am, would I be found worthy to, be, to, to have a, a place where I could have charge over your possessions in some way? Is Jesus even encouraging us to do that? I think he is. Listen, he said, if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the other slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, we're going to talk about that as the third thing, just a worldly focus then the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. And boy, we're going to have to deal with this because this sounds pretty harsh. Remember, this is parabolic teaching. This is parabolic. This is a parable. He says, he's going to come in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Now, Jesus has some harsh language for a lack of readiness. Either way you look at it, it's a tough parable. It's a challenging parable. You ready to unpack this? Let's do it. Okay, so... Again, having looked at the dress and having looked at everything and lamps lit and everything, now we're going to make this shift now, and I want to talk to you briefly about Mark. Go to Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Again, this is a worldview. This helps define my life. Jesus said it. He says it again in Mark 13. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. I, I still, that's that hypostatic union, how he can be both fully man and fully God, and in this way, fully man in the sense that he doesn't know the plans of the Father even though he's God. It's a very confusing kind of a thing, and there's a mystery in it, and Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the, you know, these secret things, they belong to the Lord, and that's okay. That's okay. Be on your guard. Be on alert. You do not know when that time will come. Again, Jesus over and over and over live every single day as if he could come back today. Would that change your life today? Maybe some of those hidden sins, some of those secret things we think we kind of just get away, get away with. Please take your own purity and pull it out of this idea of salvation or not salvation. I'm, I'm saved one day, I'm not saved the other. Think of it in terms of readiness for his return. It'll change the way you deal with sin in your life, by the way. It'll just change it, as we'll see. Now, how, uh, this issue of living as a faithful and sensible steward, I, we're going to have to jump forward four chapters in Luke, and there's just no way I can go about this without talking about what it is to be a faithful and sensible steward because Jesus gave such a clear parable as it related to stewardship, and it is a bizarre one. I have taught on this before, but let's revisit it because it's so strange. Is G if you're always looking for parables to try to get a moral point out of it, sometimes you'll be, well, you'll, you'll get lost and you won't understand. Jesus is not commending the steward here because of his morality. He's commending a completely different facet of his character. And now he's going to complain about those people who are shining that they're not nearly as shrewd as this very secular, very immoral steward. 
Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, well, there was a rich guy who, whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Remember that. Jesus is always talking about these are my possessions and I want to put you in charge of them. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Give me an account. And the manager said to himself, self, remember we talk about that? You're always talking to your soul, this internal dialogue. And he says this to his own soul, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. And well, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. He's going to try to use this last vestiges of his stewardship to go out and make a few friends around the neighborhood that maybe when he gets kicked out, which he knows is imminent, maybe they'll invite him in and say, well, you can, I'll give you a little job over here and it won't be as hard, or maybe I'll put a roof over your head and give you a little bit of food. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, well, how much do you owe my master? He said, well, 900 gallons of olive oil. And the manager said, well, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it for 450. He's acting on, it, he's acting on his master's behalf, and his master hasn't empowered him to do that. This is a fabrication. This is a lie. Will this guy, will this be official now? Will this go into the Chronicles now where he's now... He no longer owes him. He paid four fifties. Now his debt's clean. Is he is he that kind of a mediator? I don't know how all the law works here, but that's what he purported he did. And then he asked the second, "How much do you owe?" He says, "A thousand bushels of wheat." And he says, "We'll take your bill and make it eight hundred." The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world, these are non-light bearers not children of light, people living in darkness that have, to this day, still rejected light. God is light. They've rejected his, his Messiah, Jesus, and they live in darkness. But I'll tell you this, they're more shrewd, Jesus is saying, in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. When, it gone, when it's gone doesn't mean when it's gone in this life. It means when you've breathed your last. Money doesn't do you a whole lot of good. Even crypto doesn't do you a whole lot of good, even though it lives somewhere out there in the ether. I don't know. I want you to just try to, try to get this in your head. What is Jesus commending and telling this parable Shrewdness. What does it mean to be shrewd? To be shrewd means to be prudent. To be prudent. The Greek word here is phronimos. And it, and, it, and, it, and it carries with it a number of things. Intelligence, but specifically a, a mindfulness of one's own interests. You need to understand this. Are you mindful of your own eternal interests? Are you shrewd? And what does it mean to be prudent? Well, to be careful in, well, about thinking about your future, to think about providing for your future. That's what prudence is. You're thinking about what is it going to look like in the future? And Jesus says, think about your eternal destiny, not just your salvation. Be shrewd. 
Now you have an opportunity, a limited opportunity to use your money, to use your time, your treasure, your talents. You can extend these in profound ways with the identity as a slave so that you can shine, be people of light. You have an opportunity now to make friends for yourself. What did Jesus mean by that? Let me tell you something. I, I, you make all kinds of friends. I have all kinds of friends. I have distant friends, golf friends, neighborhood friends, people I know from, a, from you know, all kinds of, I always think of it in terms of concentric circles. My, I have very tight, close number of friends that I can really know what's going on in their life. Then I have a next kind of concentric circle that surrounds, and I can know quite a bit about them if their children are sick or a little bit about their anniversaries and birthdays. And then the next concentric circle, it gets a little less knowledge, and then I have people a little bit more at a distance. And Jesus is saying, why don't you be shrewd like the people of this world and start making friends for yourself with your giftedness, with your money, with your time, with everything that you have, and that one day you could even be invited into eternal dwellings. Who are my closest friends? I think eternally my closest friends will be those that I've sowed the most into. I've taken what I had as a as a manager, as a steward of my limited giftings, and I've spent it on them. I can tell you people who've spent their limited giftings on me, I, st- I honor them now all the time. You've, you've heard the stories of Justice Brister, who, you know, the Texas Supreme Court justice eventually was my roommate in college and, and Harvard Law graduate and everything else. I, I think about him all the time. You don't think that he would be invited into an eternal dwelling one day once I go to be with Christ? Of course he will be because he spent time, treasure, and talent on me when I was living in darkness. That's all there is to it. That's sensible. That's, that's readiness. That's readiness according to Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 10, whoever can be trusted with well, with a very little can also be trusted with a lot, and whoever is dishonest with a little will be dishonest with a lot. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? These are eternal riches of some sort, possessions, rulership over that. I don't understand it with complete clarity, and I think there are true riches now that we can move into as well. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, well, who's going to give you property of your own? That's just logical. If you can't run your own life, why would I put you in charge of somebody else's life if I have a say over you? No one can serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money is a very useful tool, but when you make it your God, it doesn't work at all. You'll end up hating this idea of slavery and readiness and preparedness and shining and generosity and all the other things that come along with your, well, with your readiness. You'll just hate the, you'll hate the discussion. You'll avoid it. Don't do that. Church at the Red Door, if you may be watching today on television, I don't know, if you're watching online, I'm just telling you, whatever you do, do not run from this teaching. This is how to be blessed. You want to be blessed? Right here. Jesus is giving us deep and profound insight. We're just not very shrewd. I don't think we think often. I think especially in the church in the West. I can't speak about my brother from Africa here this morning. Maybe they're more shrewd. I have 
spent no time on the continent of Africa, spent a lot of time on the European continent. We'll be headed back over there here come shortly. But I'll tell you, I just I think people in the West, we talk a lot about, as we should, a sacrifice and atonement and salvation and things that accompany salvation. But I, I'll tell you, I think oftentimes we miss the stewardship piece because it's not a popular one because it requires a cross, but it leads to blessedness. It's a strange thing. It is a strange thing. Lastly, before we conclude this morning with this idea of light, I'm going to Hopefully, I'm not going to say that I'm going to shed some light on the subject of light, but I just did, didn't I? Romans chapter 12, how do we avoid worldliness? That's, you know, why would this slave be eating and drinking and beating the other slaves in Jesus' parable? What's going on? He's just focused on himself. That's it. That's all there is to it. Why? Because he's not living in readiness. He says, my master's going to be a long time in coming back. Well, you only go around once. I'll live this life for what it is. Or maybe you're young here or you're watching and, and you're saying someday, someplace, I'll, I'll, I'll make this, these real credible decisions to follow the Lord in a more full way. But right now, don't I have to enjoy it a little bit? I, I mean, I don't, know where, I don't know how old this slave was. I don't know. I just know this slave was missing on the readiness piece. He was not Romans chapter 12, which we've discussed the last few weeks. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Climb up on the altar, give your body a living sacrifice, become a slave, say, Lord, use my body. I want to be the sensible steward. I want to shine. I want to keep my lamp lit. I want to be dressed in readiness. I want to have all the armor on. I want to really sharpen my sword. I want to put on the breastplate of righteousness, Lord. I want a helmet of salvation. All those things, and I'm just consumed with it. Do you understand? When we talk about Jesus coming back, it informs my worldview because when I get up, those are the things I'm engaged in every single day. I know that was a little hard to sing along. We normally have a worship song where we can all sing, but there will be a day where there are no more tears, that informs my worldview. Every single day, that's what I think about, his return. And what must I do as a sensible steward? I've got to avoid all the garbage that can, well, pull me into a place of spending a week or a month or, heaven forbid, an entire year, a decade, or most of my life just frittering it away on things that are really not important to the ultimate preparation of readiness for his return look if we don't talk about this kinds of things if we do some kind of deductive thing where I get up and just give you a piece of it and work some scriptures and we go line by line which forces us forces us into a place where we deal with these hard concepts but they're beautiful concepts Colossians 3 Verse 1, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things where Christ is, above, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things. Not on the things that are down here. You've died. Your life's hidden with Christ when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. Notice, it's always paired together in Paul's mind, or very often, and also Peter, as we'll see, very much in their life is they're thinking about, no, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. And then they add, and when he's revealed, in other words, when he comes back, they're able to think these things because they live in a state of expectation which forces them into being ready. 
intellectually, so there's no dissonance there. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, because he's returning, consider, view yourself as a new kind of entity in the world, a new kind of creation. The Bible says you are. You're a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, very clear. Paul just, you're, you're different. You're a born again. You're not like, you're a completely different individual. You see yourself that way. Consider yourself. What? Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, which, uh, well, it amounts to idolatry. For it's because of things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them aside, anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. Now notice again, it's because of things that the wrath of God will come. Jesus comes back, which is very, very exciting. There will be a day, Jeremy Camp says, but there will also be a day of wrath. It's the same day. It's God's presence. It's if, if he's light, light can either blow you up or can provide energy. And, you know, why didn't they burn up at Pentecost? Why was the flame there, you know? What is this? Light can do a couple of different things. It can lead to n- nuclear fusion. I mean, that's all electromagnetic energy. Or it can light the room where you can get from one place to the next or heat your food. Day of wrath is coming. Do not, do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed to the true knowledge according to the image of one who created him. Now, some of you say, well, Jeff, I thought this was about grace. Come on, man. This salvation is about grace. I, I don't know why we get so caught up. I mean, I got saved a long time ago. I preach salvation. I preach the gospel all the time. How you become, how you get born again. How do you know Jesus? How do you come to be part of the family? How do you become a child of the light? How do you, how does that happen from a meta-narrative picture from beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation? Talk about it all the time. But then you start talking about changing your life and people are like, eh, I'm more about grace. Did you know that grace has a purpose? It instructs us. Do you realize that Paul's letter to Titus, listen to what he says in Titus 2. The grace of God has appeared, and that offers salvation to all people, which is fantastic. But grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace just doesn't get us saved. It begins to teach us. It begins to transform us and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus. There it goes again. Paul's saying grace, it should lead to purity of life and sensible stewardship and the right clothing and keeping our lamps lit and having an identity as a, as a slave so that you can serve your master. All these things are true. Why? And then he pairs it with the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of God and Savior Jesus. It's always comes. You can't, if you don't think he's coming back, you'll become un, unintentionally, it just happens. If you don't live in expectation and then 
And then the corollary there is readiness. If you really expect him, you'll get ready for something. Remember, that's where Jesus said if the thief knew what time he was coming, he'd get ready and not allow the thief to move in and steal something from his house. That's what he's saying. If you really live in expectation, of course you'll be ready. Of course you'll be ready. So what do we do with this? Well, I want to deal with the elephant in the room before we conclude this, and that is this whole idea of cutting people in pieces and assigning them a place with the unbelievers. What, What was Jesus really saying there? I know that's hard. Again, a parable is just something that comes alongside to give us a sense of deeper truth. Does God really have a short fuse? Is that what God's like? Is he just so angry, the wrath of God? Well, he hates sin. He hates anything that would mar you as a created being. He hates everything that leads to the corruption of his own creation. Of course he hates it. If he didn't, who would want to worship that kind of God? Ah, who cares? Child sacrifice back in the time of the Bible? Ah, who cares? Modern-day abortion? Ah, who cares? I don't really care. Child abuse? Lying? Adultery? Murder? Ukraine, all those people being displaced, ah, I don't give a rip. Is that, is that the kind of God that you want to worship? Well, we might, we might have to if that's how he revealed himself. I mean, if he's got all the power. But God is love. God is light. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter addresses this very issue, and here we have it again. Jesus coming back. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Peter's just using Jesus' language. In which the heavens he's, will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Of course, if you're getting ready for that kind of a day, what kind of a person ought you to be? Ah, he's coming tomorrow. He's coming sometime next year. I read a book the other day that said he wasn't coming back till 2050. Nobody knows. Jesus said, I, the son doesn't even know. But that day will come on them. And it's coming on a day when no one expects. Ah, you're just using, you're using all kinds of stuff here, Jeff. I, I, I don't know if I can track with you now. You're just, I'm just trying to quote the Bible. If these things are to be destroyed, what kind of people ought you to be in conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat, the heavens. And is that the atmosphere? Usually there's first, second, third heavens, but certainly our atmosphere, I don't know that it's all the galaxies, and the, the two trillion galaxies, but it's certainly our immediate atmosphere and maybe on out, I don't know. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, therefore, because this is going to happen one day, therefore, since you look for these things, be diligent, be to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, 
wrote to you. And then he goes on to say, and that all everything he wrote was it's hard to understand. Peter says it's hard to understand what Paul was writing, but we're beginning to understand the fullness, and you could almost see it dawning on them as the Spirit was speaking through them and giving this 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 amazing wisdom, what the, we call the canonicity of Scripture, those that actually saw a resurrected Jesus, those who walked with him for three years, and then even one as one untimely born, the Apostle Paul, who was encountered on the road to Damascus. They had seen a great, what, light. John starts that way. We've seen a great light. We've seen a great light. I want to close this morning in this little series on readiness, and I may drop the ball a little on this. By the way, one piece on heaven and hell, as it relates to hell, about these unbelievers being cast outside with the unbelievers, cut into pieces, the, the one most definitive thing I know about hell, I don't know about the metaphor and the non-metaphor about lake of fire, literal lake of fire, uh, or if that's just, again, a picture, figurative language, I don't know. But one thing I do know, in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Paul is very specific And he says, here's what it is. It's eternal separation from God. That's what I know about hell, away from his power and away from his glory. Paul was very explicit about what hell was here. He doesn't necessarily use fire and and cutting into pieces and weeping and gnashing of teeth and all the other kind of language that we get in both Jesus' parabolic teaching and other places. But Paul definitively says this is outside the presence of, of the living God, away from his glory. Now, lastly, so we've looked at proper dress. We've looked at men and women who identify as slaves. We've looked at expectation 24-7. We've looked at faithful and sensible stewards. And we've even looked at, well, of course, well, then how could we dive back into worldliness and impurity and immorality? How would we even do that? Well, we would do that if we weren't expectant. That's how we would do that. Again, let me ask you the question that I started this morning with. If you knew Jesus was coming back this afternoon with that level of expectation, would your day look any different? Jesus just says, I want you to live that way all the time. So I'm going to talk about light for a second, and then I'm going to get you hopefully excited about keeping your lamp lit. Uh, many of you know I'm fascinated, again, from my very first time I ever took an astrophysics course when I was at Rice. I've just been fascinated with what's out there uh, at, the, at the Kepler's laws and galaxies and moons and stars and solar systems and light and all that. And I know I talk about it a lot, but to me it's one of the most powerful pictures. It's the book of nature that reveals God according to Romans 1. The more we understand about the big and then the, the infinitely small. I mean, the more we understand about the quantum level and things like that and try to understand what light is, do we still don't understand gravity. We still don't understand basic energy, electromagnetism. We just don't understand it, but we do understand a little bit about light. Obviously, First John 1 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Darkness is nothing. Darkness is an absence of light. Many of you know that, but it's true. Darkness is nothing but an absence of light. And so we get light and God. Now, do I, am I, I'm not a pantheist. I don't believe that God is literally a photon. 
I don't, I don't believe that, but I do believe that he is so close to it that when his presence manifests, that light explodes in the atmosphere. If you know just a little bit about what even produces light, you know, what, what happens with light? Well, you have, a, you have a nucleus and you have electrons that go flying around this core nucleus. And these, nec- these little electrons live in what, what are called orbitals. That's where they're most comfortable depending on uh, their properties. And so they fly around in different orbitals. But they can jump from one orbit to the next orbit, get a little hotter, if you will, for lack of a better expression, when what? When electromagnetic energy through a photon comes in and hits, hits an electron. And what happens is it jumps to another orbit. Now, what's, this is wild because this will give you some in, in understanding about what happens. And, and this photon is blown out, and what happens? Well, when it comes back, it's absorbed. And then when it comes back, it wants to go back to its original orbital. And when it does, a whole new photon is released. A photon comes in, a whole new photon is released, and it's released out as what? As light. And that's how we can light a match or light a candle and the paraffin and stuff that come up. And it, it's got different elements involved in it. And what happens, it's not really the candle that's on fire. It's the atmosphere above it that catches fire because uh, of, of, of this interaction between these. It's hot enough to where these little photons are going in and it's emitting light, and all of a sudden light comes. And every time you see that, you see that with God. Again, as I alluded to, whether it be the burning bush or whether it be all the way at the end, the beginning of the story with the burning bush in Exodus 3 or, or in the beginning, beginning, Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, or all the way to Revelation where now God is illumining them and it's an, it's an amazing picture of this light. And so that's what ha- light. And here's the question. Is it a particle or is it a wave? Is it energy form or is it actual matter? Well, you know, Einstein comes along and says E equals MC squared. That was a big deal. Laid the foundation for a whole new way to think about life and that time and space could be warped and all this other kind of thing and that light was actually would travel in different waves and so uh, different ways based on, it's just so incomprehensible. I don't know why people have a hard time with God. God's, God seems less hard to comprehend than just his physical universe. And so light can be both energy or it can be matter. Would it be unusual that God could take on matter form? If God is light and he could be both energy, which you can't see other than the visible spectrum, You can't even see it until it hits something and then it becomes a particle. So it's a wave. You can't see it. And then it hits something, it becomes a particle. Now, can you explain that? That God would be light and then he would hit the earth somehow and become matter? I mean, is that too unusual? They call it the particle wave duality. How do you understand that? It's the same thing as the hypostatic union. How could God be both man and God simultaneously, matter and spirit? And yet the Bible says that God is. Is light. Now, what does this have to do with us? I want you to just think again now about another place where God comes in and manifests himself, and it's always fire breaking out, flaming fire, flaming fire. It's amazing, and that's what we saw in Peter. He's coming back, and, and he'll come back in flaming fire with his angels. What happens? I think God is such a high-energy state. I've wondered. I've pondered this. this. Now, this is pure speculation on my part, theoretical from a non-physicist, so you can take it or leave it if you want, but when you take when you when we try to understand this whole picture of even you know is it string theory is it something something these springs vibrating so d- dynamically and powerful 
that God is so strong in his energy that when he enters our atmosphere that these electrons get so excited they jump and go back 100 billion billion times is what they'll do. As soon as that you turn on that light switch and that filament hits and that, and that light takes off at right from the beginning, 186,000 miles a second, whoosh, and it's gone until it hits your eyeballs and then it illumines everything. What does all this mean? What could it possibly mean? What could this possibly mean? That this, could God possibly enter our atmosphere and the atmosphere just begin to explode and fire? He's, he says he's in the lightning. He comes as lightning. He comes as flaming fire. Transfiguration happens. Jesus goes up on the mountain and he's transfigured before them. And, he, and, and what does the Bible say? He says his face shone like the sun. Garments became white as light. Did, his, did, his, did God just allow the sun's energy level to increase, and all of a sudden this light, these electrons were going, the little photons were going, ping, 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 ping. These electrons are in and out of orbit all the time, emitting all this light just because it was an increased energy state. I, I don't know, but I have to ask the scientific question, what happened there? Is there something real that's happening? Every time people seem to have an encounter with God, they're, they're blinded. They're, they can't see. It's, again, lightning, fire, every, oh, it's amazing. Here's what I want to leave you with this morning. Those who are ready at his coming. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. I don't even think the guys have this, but I'll just read it to you out of my Bible. And if that's a clue for you guys who have a Bible, you can go there too. Philippians chapter 3. I just want to read this to you. This, this gets me very excited, as you can see. I'm an electron leaving my orbital. Verse 18. Philippians 3, 18. I was starting 17. Brothers, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In other words, be, be pure, be in readiness. They were ready. You think the apostles were ready? Yes. For many walk, of whom I often have told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. That's a world focus. Verse 20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from whom also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, now get this, who will transform the body of our humble state. Let me tell you something. Our bodies are in a humble state, are they not? Into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Jesus was transfigured. Jesus in his resurrected body was able to walk through a wall and enter a room when they were praying there. There was no, it said the door was locked. They didn't hear a knock. He just was there. He just appeared. He could be translated from one place to the next, not unlike what Philip got a little piece of that on the road to Gaza. Did you know when that electron moves from one orbital to the next and then moves from that orbital back to its original orbital, that it, it we don't even see how it happens. It, 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 it disappears, and then it jumps. It becomes back into its orbital. We don't know where it goes. It's like it loses its state of matter, and then it comes back, and it becomes matter again. I mean, it's just bizarre. I mean, so when I read these things, and then I say, okay, science, help, help me understand, do any of these weird occurrences happen? Happen all the time. 
And they happen in ways that we really only understood in the last hundred years or so, thanks to guys like Einstein and many others who are unpacking the realities of a living God. God is so much energy, so much power, so much force that when he returns, the elements will melt, the heavens will melt, and we'll have a new heavens and a new earth. Some say, well, that's a nuclear bomb. Let me tell you something, a nuclear bomb's not even close. It can't even melt the atmosphere because of nitrogen and all this other stuff that is non-combustible. But when God comes back, then they were worried about that, by the way. In the early states, when they thought, they thought, oh my gosh, if we set off one of these nuclear bombs, it's going to melt the atmosphere and the earth will incinerate. And it didn't because they didn't understand CO2 and nitrogen, some of these other things that were in the atmosphere. They couldn't, they were non-flammable. But then God shows up and the atmosphere breaks out. Because why? Because God's much more powerful than a nuclear bomb. And when he comes back, the elements. Peter, Peter's a fisherman. What does he understand other than he can see out and under the inspiration of the Spirit? He says, here's what's going to happen. The heavens, the earth, everything's going to melt. All the elements are going to melt. And then a new heavens and a new earth. Now, here's a question. Where do you want to be when that purity, that form of energy, that form of perfection, that form of electromagnetic energy, that light, what kind of person ought you to be? That's what they're trying to tell me. Jeff, listen, this is going to happen. Jesus is coming back. What kind of person ought you to be? Be a light bearer. Be a slave. Be dressed in readiness. Be generous. Be ready to do anything he tells you to do. Live for him. Don't get caught up in the world. Period. That's the story. That's what I get. Does that inform your worldview? Every day I want it to inform mine more. So we're going to close with this song on this wonderful Mother's Day. Moms, you've been a light to many of your children and your grandchildren, whether it be a physical child or a spiritual, spiritual child. But the Lord continues to want us to be light. Keep your lamps lit. We know that I'm not the light, but the light can reside in me, and it's Jesus through the Spirit. And I want, him, I want to be bright. I want to shine as long as I can, and in doing so, what happens? I become ready. So we're going to close with let there be light. I hope you have a glorious day. I'm going to, before we do, I'm going to pray. Just real quickly, I'm going to pray. Look, just tell the Lord. This always demands some kind of action. I'm going to pray this, and I'll pray it for me, and then you can just add on if you want. You can tell the Lord, I want that prayer for me too. Lord Jesus, I want to be more submitted to you than I've ever been. Lord Maybe I've been preparing and getting ready, but I want to be more expectant, more ready for your return. Nobody knows the day. Lord, help me do this. Lord, help me see my life as a, as a slave, a bond slave to you. Lord, let me see my own life as a, have the potential to bear light to others through not just the sharing of the gospel, but the fullness of what my gifting is that you've given me. Lord, shine through me. Jesus, you said it in Matthew 5. Let your light shine before men that they might see your Father. Where people live in darkness. That's what Isaiah had seen in Isaiah 9. People live in darkness. It's just an absence of light. It's an absence of people who will be light. That's what this is in a spiritual sense. It's dark down here. It's dark in this valley. We need more light bearers. 
Lord, use me as a candle. That's what I'm asking you. Help me live in readiness. Oh, Jesus, help me get my mind off all these things that are so unimportant and non-transcendent. Let there be light, Lord, in my life. In Jesus' name.